filibuster receives sponsorship from the Ehrlich Law Office, discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions serving Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. They handle employment issues including wrongful termination, wage disputes, discrimination, equal employment opportunity matters, and more. They also handle civil rights litigation, defamation, and general litigation. For a free consultation, visit EhrlichLawOffice.com slash filibuster. Those of you who made it to RFK on Saturday uh, or read uh, Pablo Maurer's Twitter feed or DCist article after the game surely know not just what happened on the field during the game, but what happened at halftime as well. It was it was Talon's birthday party at RFK Stadium on Saturday, and they had a mascot penalty shootout and you know other various shenanigans um, at the stadium to celebrate Talon's birthday party they didn't say how old he was talon apparently doesn't divulge his age oh, I, th- I think i think on twitter they said he was 21 oh he's 21 okay good good for talon shots he, for talon yeah, yeah. talent here guys cheers the talon uh we hope you'll have a drink with us sometime we're all raising our glasses talon now. talon go out for the sampler <laughs> do not go for the sampler talon <laughs> talon definitely do the sampler <laughs> um that is a really awkward point to change the conversation to my daughter's uh, perspective on Talon's birthday, but she was very excited. Talon is basically her favorite. She's asleep right now, and there's a little Talon stuffed animal uh, in her bed with her. She carries it around with a couple other stuffed animals or not stuffed animals like the little blanket lovies with animal heads. Um, it's less creepy than it sounds, I swear. She carries them around with her wherever she goes, and she she loves them. She loves Talon. She loves talking about Talon. Um, and she was really excited to go to Talon's house, which is what she calls RFK. Talon's house for Talon's birthday party on Saturday. And uh, it's too bad the team couldn't give her a better result, but she cares less about that and more about the fact that it's Talon's house and it was Talon's birthday, and it was really fun and exciting for her. Oh, that's pretty yeah. adorable. Two-year-olds are great like that. And that's probably the sweetest opening we've we've ever had somebody right. ruin it. I, we, we talked about the sampler. It's already other, ruined. Yeah. I was going to say our other candidate for opening was a complaint about something minor. So yeah, <laughs> that's for us. This is like above and beyond our, our, uh, our normal good content. Uh, I should, I should just actually start the show now instead of letting this devolve. Shouldn't I? Yeah. Let's not yeah. sully. Let's yeah. not sully your daughter's reputation by talking any. Hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. I'm Adam Taylor, joined as always by Jason Anderson and Ben Bromley. We're all from blackandredunited.com, where we write about DC United, the U.S. women's national team, the U.S. men's national team, Richmond Kickers, Washington Spirit, lots of soccer in the DMV that we are writing about. And we talk about it here on the show. Tonight, we're talking all DC United all the time. They drew 2-2 two to two with the Philadelphia Union on Saturday. We're going to talk about that. And they host the defending MLS Cup champs, Portland Timbers, uh, this coming Saturday at 7 p.m. You can watch it on News Channel 8. And we will have Richard Farley, the West Coast editor for 442 USA. That sounded like too many fours, but I think I got it right. Um, we'll have him on in the second segment to preview the Portland game. Before we do anything, though, Ben, what are you drinking? So I'm still slowly getting over being sick. And so I decided to make a 
nice little grapefruit juice fizz. So it's just some LaCroix water with some grapefruit juice in it. And it's nice and refreshing. Can I can I jump in with something real quick before Adam? I don't know if you're going to ask me or not. Um, one of the members of our staff recently informed me that the only people that she knows that drink Lacroix are me and sixty year old men. So Ben, I'd like to thank you uh, for uh, your tacit approval of my own choices. Yep, I mean I, I'll drink Lacroix when it's around. My wife buys them and she enjoys them, but I'll yeah. gladly crack into one when it's around. Didn't Vox recently write a piece about how only middle-aged women drink LaCroix? Uh, I'm not, I'm not well, signing no, off on that. Apparently in L.A., like over the last year, it got. I read this article, um, and it got very big. Um, it was just like what you found at every occasion. If you wanted a sparkling water of any sort, that was what was there. Right. Um, and the article like, goes on about how LaCroix might be over, um, which is the most amazing sentence when you think about it. Um <laughs> This sparkling water is now over in L.A. It's it's passe. Um, I mean, is, is LaCroix like I, – I don't know it well. Is it like cheap San Pellegrino? Is that what we're talking about here? Because San Pellegrino has even, their, it's, it's not not their flavors. Water. It's not okay. even mineral water. It's sparkling No, there are flavors. There are, there are many flavors. Yeah. Right. It's not a mineral water. Um, okay. San Pellegrino has the minerals water. in it in addition yeah. to possible flavors. Yes. Correct. Gotcha. Well, but Jason unlike, – uh, Unlike the little Pellegrinos – there is no sugar in any LaCroix. That's ah, right. That's the key. I, I did not know that. See? Yes. We're educational. We can um, – you can probably get academic credit or something for this if you're in college please, and listening. Please submit your listening to our podcast to your professor for academic credit. Please. And let us know how it goes. Filibusterpodcast yes. at gmail.com. Jason, what are you drinking? Uh, I kind of have a similar thing going on to Ben in that I have a citrus fizzy drink. Um, I bought a bottle of Orangina on a whim on the way home and then didn't drink it with my dinner. Uh, but it was cold and I didn't have time to wait for something to get cold or anything like that. So this was the one cold mixer I had. Um, so I just threw some gin and ice in a glass, a little splash of orange juice to keep the citrus to gin ratio close to what Orangina normally is. And just topped it with with that. It's not great, but it's not bad. Um, it's refreshing enough. It's just not like anything special. It's not relevatory. It's just like, yeah, this is okay. But considering I thought okay. of it completely by the seat of my pants, uh, I guess it turned out all right. Uh, is it, is it verging on pretty good? Is it regular strength or groomsman strength? Oh, it's, this is a regular strength drink. Um, I added the gin first and paid attention this time. Um, good job. Rather than last week, where I or I guess last week I did add it first that time as well but i just didn't pay second, close enough attention i looked up at the tv while pouring and then looked back down i was like oh it's too late i can't fix this i am also drinking a citrus fizzy drink so we're three for three wow. um mine is a slightly less citrus i think than your guys i am drinking a kind of a a slightly off moscow mule um and that i'm using lemon instead of lime juice in it Still is good. I'm using uh, Civic Vodka from Republic Restoratives here in the District of Columbia. They're in Ivy City. And uh, it's a women, woman-owned business that's doing pretty well. Their they're vodka is on, on shelves all over the district, at least as far as I've seen. And they have a nice tasting room up in Ivy City. So yay, yay, D.C. distilling. Uh, and yeah, so uh, I put some ginger beer in that a friend of mine made and bottled uh, at his house. Because why not? And... Yeah, so that's what I'm drinking. This Thanks is not for the ginger beer, Pete. 
this is not dissimilar to what I almost considered drinking until I realized the ginger beer I have is just sitting out. It's not refrigerated. Mm. Um, so that's part of the reason why I skipped that. So we're thinking maybe a little too close. We're all too similar. We are. Uh, we need to spend some time apart, maybe, but we can't <laughs> because we do a show every week. Well, yeah. That said, <laughs> next week I will probably not be on the show. So, well, by the way, guys, I'm not going to be on the show next week. <laughs> Thank, thanks for telling us. Yeah, no problem. You might want to find someone to sit in. Uh, <laughs> now I that we've shrug. taken care of literal, had, had to watch me shrug. Uh, I made the shruggy emoji uh, in real life. Uh, so we'll prepare Based on. We'll, we'll prepare during Monday. <laughs> yeah, most likely. Um, so, yeah, let's get to the soccer. DC United gave up a first half lead and then later came from behind to force an emotional two to two draw with the Philadelphia Union Saturday at RFK Stadium. Uh, the goals came from Patrick Mullins early and Steve Birnbaum late. Chris Pontius scored for the wrong team in this one and then did not celebrate if you make a big deal out of that or not. If you care about that fact, he didn't celebrate uh, in front of you know his his former fans, um, and a lot of us are still fans of Chris, if not the Union. Anyway, uh, a lot of fans are rightfully, I would say, disappointed with more dropped points at home. But if you looked at the players on the field after that second goal, they were really fired up. They they seemed it seemed like they grabbed a winning goal almost. I don't know if they just needed not to lose or if they had just put their entire beings into that trying to get that goal, especially after Olsen got sent off it, if they were, felt like they were playing 11 against 14 because the refs were um, not great in this one. Uh, ben, do you think we'll look back at this? If the team gets on a run and look back at that burn bomb goal as the emotional turning point? I mean, yeah, if they, if the team gets on a run, sure. That's a big and, <laughs> and, and if they barrel into the playoffs uh, on the back of this, then sure. Yeah, of course that's the turning point, but from where we can see right now, it's more dropped points that could have been preventable. And we're what, seven points now, six or seven points out of the playoffs? No, only, only two points out of the playoffs. Because everyone else is so bad that we actually gained ground on New England and Orlando this weekend. Who both okay. got pretty well smoked over the weekend, yeah. So okay. we gained ground in the playoff chase, but we lost ground if we want to host a game during that play-in round. Right. So, yeah, it was it was great. It was a great goal. It was a great uh, set piece that Lamar Nagel somehow knowing to get out of the way at the last millisecond was great. Yeah, he said he didn't. The, a quote about that came out today. He said he didn't see Burnbaum. He just heard him at the last possible moment and then yeah. ducked out of the way. And how well it worked. <laughs> and it was great to finally see Burnbaum start to put some of his infamous headers into the back of the net for DC United instead of being tantalizingly close. So I hope well, all of that to say is basically, I hope they can turn this into the emotional rallying point that they need, but I'm not, it's not proven to me yet. It is. It was a multi-goal game for United, which as wasteful as they were is, is something, I guess. And that finishing is what I want to talk about next, because without better finishing across the board uh, from everyone. We're not going to be looking at this as an emotional turning point. We're going to look at this as, hey, remember that time Birnbaum scored late in stoppage time, and that'll be it. Uh, Jason, who who's first on your list as far as needs to improve finishing? It's a tough list. It's a long list. I don't know that I can give an answer, especially after this game, because if you look at the shot totals from the, especially the starters, 
Um, United starting midfield and, and forward didn't really have that many looks at goal. Um, Acosta had one, De Leon had one, Mullins had two. Um, and that's the whole front six. Um, by contrast, Steve Birnbaum had four shot attempts. Um, Kennedy Igbonanike had four in 21 minutes and Lamar Nagel had four in 28 minutes. So, um, for this game, I think, you know, the, the standout chance, uh, that people are talking about is the Patrick Mullins, uh, miss when he was through on goal. Um, and that was one where, and I, and I was talking about this earlier with you guys, um, the, the, the issue there is when Blake comes off his line and then doesn't keep coming, he decides to has step back. Mullins does need to take the extra touch, get closer to goal and, and draw Blake out because then you've got the old MLS shootout sort of scenario, which you should absolutely right. be burying. Um, but if you're not going to do that, if you're going to make, and it is a mistake, don't get me wrong. It's a mistake to not do that. But if you're going to make that mistake, what Mullins tried to do was the best of the bad decisions, which is to shoot with power early because the goalkeeper is still, still retreating into a good position. You've got all the goal to shoot at, um, rather than having your angle cut down. Um, and even if your shot isn't that great, if you hit it with enough power, he's going to have to make a save, cough up a rebound, and maybe you can just walk it in from there and save your blushes a little bit. Um, the only issue is for any of that to happen, your powerful shot needs to be on the frame of the goal. And Mullins missed by, not by much. It wasn't like it was a horrible shot. It just whistled wide of the post. Um, but it seemed like that's the one that everyone's going to focus on. Um, I would have liked to see United turn their first half performance into a few more chances. Um, I think they had a lot, they, they did a lot right before that miss and they just didn't create more than Kemp's goal, which kind of came out of the blue. If we're being honest, that wasn't a United is dominating and the goal was inevitable. That was Taylor Kemp did something he's never done before, which yeah. is, uh, go on like a 70 yard dribbling run. Um, fake that, Kent that he's done his before. Boots. Well, he's going on 70 yard runs, but he hasn't like beaten somebody in that, that right. manner and then put in a perfect low shot across Andre Blake. Um, so it, it, the first half is kind of an illusion for me. And so it's kind of hard for me to say X player needs to shoot better um, or X player needs to finish. It's it to me, this was several players wasting chances. Um, just like last week where we had multiple players uh, missing chances. It's not one player. It's a bunch of guys missing their one shot basically. Right. And, and I think it's also, we, this used to be a team, especially when, Spindola was was out there. This was a team that was a little too eager to shoot from outside of the box, and and they've almost gone too far the other way. And and Sean Franklin comes to mind when he gets into the box. He even if he's one on one with the keeper, he's looking to pass. Well, he and, and Lucho Acosta. Yeah, um, the two of them uh, are a little bit shot shy some of the right. time. I understand Acosta's mindset because he thinks of himself as a playmaker first. So it's all about the assist, and he wants he wants to, to have the assist that we don't even talk about the goal score. We talk about the assist that led to the goal. Um, That's what he wants out of soccer. I think that's like the number one thing that when he thinks goes to play a game, he's like, I want to do this. I want to put in an assist. That's so good. that no one even cares who scored the goal, Um, which is a great attitude for a playmaker, but it does come with the occasional frustration of man. Why didn't you shoot that one? Like one touch earlier. And it just, it it would have been a normal goal and it would have been not very stylish, but you get a, a, you know, you get a goal for it rather than, trying to set someone up so well that they cannot not score. 
Um, right. And everyone is like, that was an amazing assist. You don't necessarily get points for that. Um, so it, it's the good and the bad. There was a there was actually a guy standing a row behind me who had never been to a soccer game before. And he was trying to pick up on what was going on in the game. And he was very fascinated by people's opinions of Acosta because as a non-soccer fan, all he saw was a guy not making a pass uh, and it was frustrating to him. But everyone mm-hmm. else was like, yeah, but he's awesome. Um, and it was a weird <laughs> – it's the dichotomy of of those two things where if you don't know soccer, the inefficiency, I guess, of Acosta's approach um, would be bothersome if you're like a football fan where everything is about um, getting the job done and style points don't exist. Um, right. So that was an interesting thing to me. But uh, yeah, I – it's a frustrating game to take 18 shots, score two goals and not have anything to show for it. But it's also frustrating to look at these shot totals and see Burnbaum and Kemp have the goals. The back four took more shots than the starting front six. I mean, that's just, that's weird. It's not how this is supposed to work. And I think a lot of it comes down to um, just the urgency United played with after they went down a goal. And especially as, the game got later and later. And so the subs were in as United were, were more urgent. And so, and as Philly just conceded possession completely. And so of course we got more shots at that point. And Birnbaum moved up to be a, a second forward because he's an, he's elite aerially. Well, not only that, but I mean, stoppage time was basically like Franklin and Hamid playing center back and three or four guys playing midfield and everyone else was just in the box. Um, Yeah. Because at that point, the shape of the team stops really mattering that much, uh, especially for the attacking team. Um, yeah. I will, I will note one other thing uh, that changed with the subs. I know I mentioned Nagel and Igbo and Anike taking all those shots. Uh, uh, Boucher coming on um, and taking four. Yes. We ended up, I think getting three shots out of his four corner kicks. Um, so the set piece delivery improved, improved dramatically when he came in and that made a big difference during it, during a segment of the game where Philly was like, fine, take the corner kick. We don't care. Um, yeah, it was nice to see it. And it was nice to see him on the field with, uh, Acosta at the same time. Yeah, I was, uh, and I'm personally, I'm pro, uh, Buescher getting a start sometime very soon. If I, I think this performance and who knows what happens in practice, but it, I wouldn't mind seeing Nick DeLeon on the bench and Buescher give it a chance in, in that role. Right. I think the issue right now is Buescher's defensive positioning and decision-making um, are, are his liability right now. And if he can get, if he can improve on that, then absolutely. I think he could start over DeLeon, but I don't, it, it, we haven't seen that in part because he hasn't been on the field enough. Right. But, uh, but we don't recently. know what, yeah, but we don't know what Olsen is seeing in training. My hunch is that that would be what's what's holding Buescher back at this point. But who knows? But we uh, need to score some dangles. We really do. We did get two to this weekend. so And and Portland's going to be missing a, a key piece in their midfield, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, let's talk about Ben Olsen. And we mentioned that the emotions were running high in this game. It seemed like everyone knew we needed a result. It would have... Everyone would have preferred a win. And even as emotional as the guys on the field were, they said in the locker room afterward that it, they need to win games and they need to win them now. They need to win them two weeks ago. Um, ben Olsen, though, emotions running high, got sent off uh, after yelling to uh, Jeremy Rufo, can we get one call, just one call? 
That's what he was yelling at him after uh, Marufo denied a, a foul to Acosta just outside the Philly box and then awarded a, a throw-in to Philly right in front of the D.C. bench that everyone in the stadium thought should have been D.C. United's, except for J.R. Marufo. And after uh, a couple of tackles that looked red card worthy from my seat, um, that he awarded respectively a yellow card and no card. Yes. Um, Marufo, like Ben had had it and he'd been talked to Marufo, been talked to by Marufo earlier for laying into him and Benny had just had it. And so he got himself sent off uh, pleading his case. And I think that actually served to fire up his, it his players the, a little bit more. It was the college basketball ejection. That's exactly what I was thinking of. I'm, I'm from Indiana. So Bob Knight and Gene Cady were kind of the masters of that technical foul slash ejection to get your guys fired up. And it kind of worked. We got, we got the, the, the comeback goal, but uh, I just wanted to, to highlight that. Um, well, and Olsen is a basketball fan. Uh, that's yeah, well is. known. Uh, he loves basketball. So that he might have been thinking that of that in the same way. Um, he's like, I know what I can do. I don't have a chair that I can throw on the court like uh, like uh, Bob Knight. Uh, and, and honestly, you don't really want to emulate Bob Knight in most ways, um, that's, in that's almost correct. all of the ways. But in, many um, ways, yes. in in terms of getting your players motivated during a game, this can work. Yeah, and on the contrary, though, on the, the other side, you have Jesse Marsh up at with the Red Bulls, who got himself thrown off, and then his team conceded two goals. I don't actually don't he know did, the exact order. But, he did manage but, to hug the fourth official on his way off the field. It was awesome. Um, it was like it was like he was showing off, showing up the ref. It's like this guy's okay. You suck. He, he has had some awesome reactions to getting sent off between throwing the ball like a, a large child against the Union uh, a couple months ago to this. Didn't he kick one ball and then take another one with him? <laughs> no, he was started to walk off with it and then he threw it angrily against the ground um, after he was already being sent off. Um, and then this sarcastic hug. Um, if you're going to get ejected, you might as well have some fun with it because you're already leaving the field. You already have you already have to go anyway. There's already. As long as you're not doing anything violent, uh, you're probably just making people laugh more than anything else. So, um, yeah, and you want to make sure your team knows how angry you are, <laughs> right? Without without going so far where people are like, "Come on, man! I just I'm just embarrassed to be associated with you." Yeah, which um, you might have be been where Marsh got. <laughs> yeah, slamming the ball on the ground is definitely the like, "Come on, man! You're supposed to be and hugging the ref." Um, hugging the ref at least is like kind of funny, and you're gone, and it's over, and you're not yelling anymore or throwing anything. Um, <laughs> You know what? It, you know what that actually reminds me of. There's a thing on Facebook that goes around every so often of a guy in a rec league who gets sent off every week for a various reason, and the league sends him a list of all the reasons. One of them is oh, scoring yeah, all I've the goals. That. One of them yeah. is is doing various things. Hugging the ref sounds yes. like one of the reasons he would get sent off. Yes, because because apparently the guy was just like too good for the league he was in anyway, and so he turned it into a farce. And his yeah. teammates, I guess, didn't tell we're, him we're okay was showing this. up. They were like, "It's fine." <laughs> in my old indoor league, if you got sent off, you had to play short, which is really bad when you're already out of shape and you have to play six on five. It's a nightmare. Um, mm-hmm. Doing so that in sevens sucks, too. I don't know what league this is where your teammates would be like, no, it's fine. This is worth it. Because as much as I like a, a farcical joke, I would be more like, dude, don't get sent off. I can't do this much running. Come on. <laughs> Let's get back on the field. Uh, Rob Vincent played in the, the number six spot for this one and uh apparently according to uh the broadcast that is what he considers his natural position which i had no idea i 
thought of him as a goal scoring winger and he played a little bit centrally for United earlier this year. Uh, but always in front of a more defensive midfielder. This is the first time we saw him shielding the back line. How do you guys think he did? Fine. He was, he, he was okay. I mean, mostly I didn't, I, mostly I forgot he was on the field, which for at least half of the job is okay. Yeah. Uh, I think some of his distribution was pretty nice. He, you look at his, his passing chart and it's, you'd like some more usage out of that spot. He had, I think less than 30 passes. You'd like some more there, but the passes he did hit were generally accurate and they, some of them were forward over a good distance. Um, but Jason, I think you have some stats about Tranquillo Barnetta that make me a little more hesitant to say that, that Vincent was doing a good job. I, I wouldn't put this all on Vincent. This was a team wide issue, um, in the midfield and even, uh, Occasionally amongst uh, the wingers and and every really, really the whole everyone except Mullins is and Hamid are sort of involved in this. Um, Barnetta ended up with six key passes, uh, six successful dribbles, six fouls suffered. Um, he uh, basically ran the game as far as the union were concerned, which is the second game in a row that a union player has a ridiculous performance against United. Last time, a lot of people thought that was Il Sino. It was actually CJ Sapong, um, who didn't score two goals, but did clearly dominate that game. Um, This time, I I don't think Barnett had dominated the game so clearly because United didn't play horribly as they did uh, uh, up in Chester uh, a couple, or I guess it's a month ago now. Um, But yeah, Barnett had a great game. Um, and I, I don't think that's all really on Vincent, especially because he's deeper. Um, I think he caught a little bit of a break in that they started Fabian Herbers over Roland Allberg. Um, it's a, a less complicated assignment. Herbers has been pretty good in that role coming in as a sub, but if I'm not mistaken, this is his first time starting as their uh, attacking midfielder. Um, so, you know, Vincent was all right. I think he would like to be in a deep lying playmaker role rather than as an anchor. Um, I think he would like the runner. I, I think he's the kind of player that would prefer having a destroyer, like a roving destroyer a little ahead of him where he gets to pass uh, from those deep positions and somebody else goes and wins the ball more than him. Not that he's just standing around. He's not pure low. Um, so it, kind of the way Marcelo would play if Jared Jeffrey were in the central midfield in front of him with Acosta. Uh, a little, I think, I think, um, Marcelo likes to make a, uh, be a little more, uh, of a physical presence, uh, a little more of a, uh, not That's just a physical true. presence, but also I think he would like to get involved a little more going forward not just sit deep and spray passes. Um, it's interesting though, because Vincent did play central midfield in college. Um, and then he went to Pittsburgh and I guess, during their training camp last year, they were like, listen, we're going to play you as a winger because you can shoot and we'll make sure you get in the shooting positions and it'll be great. And he scored 18 goals. So it was pretty great. Um, but he hasn't been as quick at that in MLS. The spaces aren't, aren't as obvious. So he hasn't been able to solve that. Uh, there have been times where he's gotten into the space to shoot just that split second too late. He's just a little right. behind and he doesn't have that opening to do it. Um, so for him and, and for him saying that this is where he feels most comfortable, where he sees himself as a player, um, if he can become a contributor at that spot, that's good because I think 
as busy as United was during the, the transfer window, I think pretty much anyone looking at the team can agree that if they could make one more move, a a defensive midfielder would have been a, a, a pretty wise move to make. Um, just adding that one more player at, at that spot would have been an, a nice thing to be able to do. Obviously, you know, adding three attackers was much more of a priority. Um, right. But if, yeah, if, now know, we just need to... Now, now with the window closed, we just need to get Vincent on the same uh, Davy Arno blood transfusions that that Marcelo's <laughs> been on all year, and we do that, and then he'll be a fine backup. But I think Marcelo will be back this week, so we've yeah. got a couple weeks but, but until Vincent he's suspended still, again. Vincent before. will be involved because you know Jeffrey missed out due to a hamstring strain that was, uh, as the team does with with injuries that might affect the game plan. They kept that one to themselves. Um, and it was sort of announced right before the game, like, oh, hey, by the way, Jerry Jeffrey can't play a hamstring strain, um, which is a competitive advantage. It, it doesn't make our job as bloggers easier and it confuses fans. But the first job when you're running a team is to win games. So if right. you have to choose that over uh, telling everyone exactly what's going to go on, you're going to choose winning games. So um, it's good for Vincent that we're not sitting here being like, man, we only tied this game because Rob Vincent was so bad at defensive midfield. Um, but I, I think Ben had it, you know, nail in the head. He was fine. It wasn't a special performance. It wasn't like, wow, Rob Vincent could become the starter, you know, going forward, but it wasn't like, please never let this happen again either. So right. it was all right. Um, overall, I think he, he seemed at home pretty quickly. It wasn't like, Oh man, I've never done this before with it. I mean, he hasn't played that role, that deep role, in an active game before that we've seen in, in for DC United, but he didn't seem like to need half an hour to figure things out first. He was, he seemed pretty comfortable. He was up to speed. That's for sure. Yeah. So before we bring on Richard Farley, is there anything else you guys want to see DC United improve specifically against the Timbers? Uh, I'd like other to than see- finishing creating chances. Um, yeah, I guess those are the two big ones. Cre- Sorry, go ahead. I mean, United created plenty of chances in desperation time. I'd like to see right. that happen a little earlier. Um, looking over the lineup, just it's up on my uh, non-internet connected uh, desktop in the back, but it's about six inches behind my laptop. Um, Lloyd Sam wasn't very involved in this game. Uh, I'd like to see he, he and Franklin. I, I will say Franklin didn't really get forward very much in this game um, as much as he has in the past. Um, perhaps a tactical move to deal with, uh, Pontius, um, and, and Fabinho for that matter. Um, but yeah. I still want to see Sam and Franklin more involved because we've seen how quickly they developed an understanding. Um, it was almost instant. So, you know, if you can add that threat on both sides, whereas, whereas, you know, in this game, it was much more the left side than the right side. That would help quite a bit. Um, because then all of a sudden, instead of it being, you know, all, all you can do as a right winger at that point when you're not involved is maybe get on the back post and, and finish something. Um, if you have it going from both sides, you make it that much harder to defend down the middle, which this week, as as we we're, we keep alluding to, uh, getting the middle open is going to be more important than usual this week uh, against Portland. So, you know, getting Sam going would be nice um, if if Lucho could refine his decision-making at that last moment where, you know, if he were to take a shot rather than uh, hitting a pass when the moment is right for him to score a goal. Um, 
as much as I don't want to tell him, please don't, please stop doing awesome things that entertain us that we'll talk <laughs> about forever. On the other hand, like if you just uh, roll the ball into the back of net and score an unremarkable goal, that's also a good thing. Um, but overall, I mean, you know, getting Buescher involved maybe a little earlier might be nice. Um, given that Burnbaum ended the game as the team's uh, the the joint leader in shot attempts and shot on goal, uh, shots on goal. Uh, and it's not like he was taking shots in the run of play. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, that requires the set piece uh, delivery to be good. So, you know, uh, there are, there are things that are, are going really well with this team. I guess my one concern from this game beyond those specifics is the mind, the, the kind of drop off that United suffered um, pretty much from the Mullins miss until the Pontius goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and even a few minutes after the Pontius goal, it, it took them a couple minutes to, to, stop being angry and start focusing on getting things right. Um, and they kind of let the game get away from them during that stretch. I think um, what's the, we talked about this as well earlier uh, offline or not on a podcast anyway. Um, Philly is being credited with uh, 81 duels one and United is being credited with 50. Um, and yeah. I have to think that that golf mostly happened between the Mullins miss and the Pontius goal. Um, yeah. When it looked like they just didn't, didn't right. care. Well, it, yeah. It just looked like they were sleepwalking a little bit. Like the, the goal was such or the miss was such a slap in the face. And then it for it to be followed with Barnetta's goal um, where Hamid takes two steps in the wrong direction. And maybe this team is just not, we're, we're so accustomed to Hamid just doing everything right all the time forever that, if he does make a mistake, it's almost like, whoa, what's going on? It's like someone, you know, waking up and finding out that gravity is a half strength for the day. Um, and you have to reconcile that with your entire life before it. Um, maybe United just wasn't psychologically awake because, you know, the Mullins miss was in like, what, the 35th minute, give or take. Um, yeah. So then they had 10 minutes and then they had halftime and then they had a solid 15 minutes of the second half where they were still reeling that whole time. Like halftime normally is enough of a break where you're like, okay, we're reeling, but we can get it together. And it took them even longer than that to pull it back together and get, get going again. Um, and you, you have to credit the union for sensing that and taking advantage. Um, but that's happened a few times this year where United's mindset has sort of, They've, they've sort of lost control uh, mentally a little bit for, for a stretch of a game. Um, and they the margin of error isn't there anymore. Um, when we're talking about, you know, we talked about this home streak needed to be nine points. I, I think now eight will probably do because of the fact that uh, Orlando and New England uh, also keep messing up. Um, right, but that means winning the last but, two. Yes, it means a winning streak has to happen, which is what we talked about on the site in more than one post about how this team has to get a winning streak out of this homestand. And they still do um, because we can't accept, expect them to suddenly be better on the road. Um, mm-hmm. There's too much evidence that they're not going to be better on the road by so much that it can make up for this. You know, teams don't go from a road record is like what one, one win, five, four, four or five losses and like six draws. Um, you don't suddenly go from that kind of road record to like picking up three more wins on your la- in your last six road games. Yeah, yeah it doesn't happen. Um, it, I mean, this is MLS. There's always the chance that just it's weird and it happens for no good reason. Um, but you don't want to be banking on that. Um, that the MLS wheel of fate points your way this time for once for for no good reason. Um, 
that's not how this whole thing is supposed to work. So um, these two games are more important than an August home game would seem to be. But this whole homestand has been like that. Yeah. And we, we've talked about on the site how at least at home, this the the four one four one slash four three three that they've been running has has had better fundamentals than the the old four four two did as far as chances created and the quality of the chances um, as well as the aesthetics frankly um, but right now they have to finish those chances and if those chances start follow, falling that's good but like Jason said the mindset has to be there and that's hopefully where where the the equalizer in stoppage time on Saturday comes right. in. Hopefully they can take that urgency that they felt and that almost catharsis and right. and put it forward and and build on it. Um, that would be starting that would be right nice. now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think this team needs to feel a win. Um, yes, before they can start looking back on turning points. Yeah, I think uh, if they go out and score twice, if they take a two nothing lead on the Timbers, I might look back on that second goal as more important than Burnbaum's goal. Um, just on the fact that this team has had so many opportunities to not just take a lead on a team, but actually make it very easy on themselves. And they almost never do it. Um, and the times they've done it, they've been excellent. I mean, they dismantled Vancouver. Um, right. They pretty much did the same against the Revs. Not that the Revs are on Vancouver's level, but it's still a team that you're competing with for the playoff spot. But it, the key in all of those games was turning a good performance into a two goal lead rather than a one goal lead, um, which didn't happen against Montreal. And it didn't happen this week against Philly. And until they do that at home, this is going to be tough every single time. All right. Now we're going to put the Philly game behind us and look forward to the Portland game. And we'll do that right after this break. Stick around. This is filibuster the Black and Red United podcast. Hey, Ben, um, you wouldn't say this is a hostile work environment, would you? You can tell uh, me. Depends. I mean, well, I should ask you. I mean, is are goats hostile? Uh, I think goats are, are hostile. I think that they are secretly trying to take over the world. But but if this were a hostile work environment, or if I were trying to steal your wages, or or do something else oh, nefarious, in a, I'm really not. Uh, but in a workplace environment, you know who to call, right? Because you live in the District of Columbia or Northern Virginia. I, I do. It's the Ehrlich Law Office. It is the Ehrlich Law Office. Uh, they they offer discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions in Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia, which means I can totally create a hostile work environment for Jason. Except, no, he, they, they wouldn't want me to say that. That would be bad. I do not want to create a hostile work environment for anyone. But Jason couldn't call them nonetheless because he lives in Maryland. Sorry, Jason. I'll fight my way through this. All right. <laughs> Uh, they handle workplace discrimination, wage theft, uh, non-compete clauses, and uh, non-solicitation litigation. They handle civil rights and government takings and disability and education law. They handle a lot of things. And if you are interested in a free consultation, head to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster.
Welcome back to Filibuster. Uh, DC United is getting a visit this weekend from the reigning MLS Cup champions. That would be the Portland Timbers who play at RFK Stadium. 7 o'clock Saturday night on News Channel 8 if you're in the district or uh, whatever the local Sinclair station is in your market if you're not. Uh, Richard Farley from 442 USA is here to help us preview the game. He's actually out in the Rose City. So, uh, Richard, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to great to be here. It's nice to meet a couple of you guys, and it's equally nice to talk to Jason again, who I have talked to before. I've known for a long time, so this is exciting to be able to talk to you guys. Awesome. We have a little tradition here. We got to ask you, what are you drinking? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I am drinking chocolate milk because my fragile digestive system couldn't process the soda it had an hour ago. Did you not so, see yeah. those? Did you not see the videos on Facebook of what Coca-Cola does to various things and how it destroys <laughs> life itself? Yeah, I soaked my whole abdomen in Coca-Cola for two years, and now I can only drink chocolate milk. <laughs> uh, it, it sucks because you have a lot of great craft beers out in your neck of the woods. Yeah, I can't drink tonight because I actually have a lot of writing ahead of me, but... I sure have been drinking a lot the last couple of nights. I was in Seattle for a week, and I got back down here. I've been catching up with everybody since. And uh, I can use a night at home, preferably not with an upset stomach, but not going to tempt it with all the craft beers you alluded to. All right. That's fair. I can't fault you for that. Uh, you're, the, the Timbers are fresh off a 3 nothing win over Sporting Kansas City last weekend. Um, tell us a little bit what, about what in, went into that. You know, the game was completely aberrational. There's not going to be a lot to take out of it, uh, particularly so because Caleb Porter actually changed his formation for this one. Uh, for most of the season, he for all the season, he's been playing various forms of a one front. Uh, the 4-3-3 that he closed the end of the season with last year that took the team to the title, uh, he had to change that a little bit when Darren Maddox went down about a month ago, switched more to a 4-2-3-1. But the team had been struggling to score goals in recent games against the LA Galaxy and Sporting Kansas City. Only scored one goal across both those games, and it wasn't exactly a well-crafted goal. It was after LA's defense was really packed in, and then Zarek Valentin hit one from outside the box. So he tried going with a two-forward setup on Sunday, had Fernando Adi and Zach McInerney starting up top. But after 12 minutes of the game, Diego Chara got a red card, forcing Zach McInerney to drop back to left wing. Uh, eventually, Sporting Kansas City got a red card too. Portland went on to win the game 3-0, like you said, but as far as analytical value, unless both teams are going to leave a player in the locker room, there's not much we can learn from that one. Yeah, and I, from what I understand, the the Sporks really had most of the possession, and then Portland were just lethal when, when they had the ball. It, it seemed like what, what we talk around here about Benny Ball gone right in some ways. <laughs> It's been a pattern for the last few months with the Timbers, and really for quite some time. About midway through his second season, Caleb Porter went away from what Kyle Martino for NBC uh, dubbed Porter Ball, which was a very possession-heavy system where even he really focused, focused on possession percentages and passing numbers, and they started playing more on the counter as teams started to adjust to them. And now the one way to surely get roasted against the Timbers is if you let, let them get out in transition with players like Darlington Nagby, uh, Diego Valeri, Fernando Adi, and that's what happened to Sporting Kansas City. They seem to, after going up a man, really slow down the game, be very patient, kind of what you would really want a team to do when they're up a man to start adjusting to that advantage, but they never got out of that. So when 
uh, when it was 10 versus 10 in the second half, Portland was able to use the extra space and the change in the tactics to get out on the counter. And, and um, that transition game just killed, DC, uh, killed Sporting KC. So the Timbers are one of five teams, I think, in Major League Soccer that have yet to win a game away from home this mm-hmm. year. DC United's not much better. They've only won once. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what's going on? Do, do the Timbers come out differently when they're on the road? Is this bad luck? Is it not having the psychological, psychological edge of Providence Park behind them? What's, what's going on? You know, I'm not really sure because you pointed out that there are five teams that are let, yet to win on the road this year. There are a lot of teams with one and two wins, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at it team by team. You try to figure out if there's a problem. I think we need to be looking at more kind of league-wide solutions. And the only thing that really comes to mind is that there isn't this mentality in Major League Soccer that you're expected to go on the road and win. Um, the last time the Timbers were expected to go on the road and win, they won MLS Cup in Columbus, 2-1. to one. Uh, but in this league, it's almost like people use it as a built-in excuse. Oh, we're traveling long distances. We're we're not we're playing at altitude. When we're a sea level team, the different uh, temperatures. But then you look at a team like Seattle that had to deal with all of that this weekend in Orlando. But they also had to deal with the expectations of having a new coach, seeing every game as must win if they're going to be in a playoff race. And they played really well against an Orlando team that had impressed in their first game under Jason Christ. So I kind of think it's mental. Um, we saw Seattle too when they visited DC United a month ago. Have go in there and win two to nothing, even though that's across three time zones and it's a it was a bad Seattle team at that time. Um, until we can think of something else, since we see it's so widespread throughout Major League Soccer, I'm kind of inclined to just see think that there just aren't the expectations in this league that teams have to go out on the road and win. So let's look ahead to this game on Saturday. The Timbers will be missing Diego Chara, who you mentioned had a red card, violent conduct against Benny Failhaber. How are the Timbers going to adjust with 11 men on the field but no Chara? Uh, it's, it's one place where the Timbers would probably prefer not to have another absence if they could pick a spot because another of their holding midfielders, Ben Zemanski, is likely to miss the game also. He had a growing injury that kept him out of Sunday's game against Sporting KC, and the initial timelines that we were given at the end of last week for that mean he probably won't make the trip to D.C. for this one. Uh, Porter is known to be a little bit coy on that stuff, so I wouldn't be shocked if Zemanski plays. However, if you take him on his word for that, the only option that Portland has if they are going to maintain playing two deep midfielders, uh, which they're very likely to do because that's what they've done ever since Darren Maddox got injured at, uh, at, at Red Bull Arena a month and a half ago, is to drop Darlington Nagby back into central midfield. So you'll probably see a pair of Jack Jewsbury Nagby right in front of the defense. You'll see Lucas Milano and Diego Valeri in attack. And if they stay with a 4-4-2, you'll see Fonato Adi and Jack McInerney up top. Uh, Richard, I, I guess my first question is about a new player that uh, a lot of people were pretty impressed with uh, this weekend, whose name I am absolutely going to try not to butcher, but I am absolutely going to butcher. Um, Vitautas Andreas Kevikus. Yeah, um, Andreas Kevikus, yeah. Who's, it's handy that he apparently is just fine if you just call him Vitas, which is yes. a lot easier. Um, <laughs> that is the only name spell. that's on his locker. Yeah, um, that's much, much easier, um, and I probably should have just gone with that to start with. Um, he is a Lithuanian international, kind of signed out of nowhere, um, but uh, he, ever, I think across the board, people were really impressed with him. Tell us a little bit about what uh, what Portland's trying to get out of uh, their new left back as opposed to how things were before. 
Yeah, I'm not sure that there's going to be a lot of difference there. Uh, and I think that anybody that wants to tell you they know a lot about Vetus is probably full of crap because we see a lot of players, even if you have the scouting report from overseas, they come over to this league and they can't adjust to the pace of the game or the athletes that they're going up against. Uh, you look at the level of play that Vetus had played at before. We've seen players from that level of play come over here and succeed. We've seen them fail also. But what they're going to try to get out of him is somebody that you saw uh, perform like he did on Sunday, going to be able to provide quality from the wide positions, going to make teams adjust to go out there and get him and not just let him tee off. I think that there wasn't really, hasn't really been that threat out there at left back this year between Zarek Valentin, who uh, just coming back to Major League Soccer, Jermaine Taylor, who is really a center back that just happens to be a little bit versatile, and then Chris Cludie, who hasn't been able to regain the form that we saw him have uh, when he was a best 11 contender in Colorado. So, uh, what we're actually going to get from him, who knows. But in theory, he's a guy that you're going to have to get out there and prevent like he did on the opening goal on Sunday, play a nice ball in and really trouble a defense. Uh, I guess uh, my second question is with the, I guess it's uh, multiple new signings, really. Uh, Portland sort of did uh, the opposite of D.C. D.C. sent a bunch of attackers. Portland went out and grabbed a bunch of defenders. Um, Steven Taylor, uh, who... EPL fans know from his time at Newcastle, mm-hmm. um, Gabena um, Arakoyo. Um, are those guys, first of all, are they eligible? And second of all, um, are they are they ready to, to be a factor right away? Because, I mean, with the defensive midfield issue, um, it, it starts to become a, a question of, you know, do you play, do you, do you pull Nagby back where he played fairly well against Kansas City? But if you pull him back, then you've got to look at, possibly changing formation back to four, two, three, one and, and shifting things around. Or can you, um, who's the player I'm looking for? Um, uh, move a Okugo, uh, up into central midfield, um, where he has a lot more experience, but Portland signed him in part because of a huge defensive injury crisis. Yeah. Um, how are you looking for that? I mean, I guess, I guess my question, the long, the, the short version is how is this all supposed to work out? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good question about Amobi because I fielder for this team, even though obviously everybody is very aware that's how he came into the league. Um, so I would put money on Nagby and Jewsbury being in central midfield, but obviously Amobi is a depth option there. As far as the central defenders that have been brought in, there's been a lot more talk here about Steven Taylor, who did play in the T- T2 game, USL mm-hmm. game this week. Uh, reportedly didn't play that well, uh, had an own goal. Uh, obviously has a vast Premier League pedigree, though. Um, one of the interesting questions would be if Steven Taylor is going to be injected into the team. He he forms a nice partnership with Liam Ridgewell because he's a little bit slower foot, whereas Liam Ridgewell is pretty quick. And you can kind of see him sliding into that Nat Borchers role. And Borchers having ruptured his Achilles tendon, Achilles tendon three weeks ago. Uh, if Ridgewell isn't back for the D.C. United game, does that mean you're more likely to see a Moby Akugo partner Steven Taylor rather than Jermaine Taylor just for that kind of complementary role type thing? Back to Moby Akugo. I mean, the guy is obviously talented. He's not spectacular. We've seen him play. You guys have seen him play mm-hmm. a lot, given the markets that he's played in before. And if you were to step into defensive midfield, you know he would be fine, particularly in a pinch. I'm just not sure that Portland has really tried him there that much at this point. And so if they're planning on dropping him in there and kind of maintaining the integrity of their system, you can see how coaches might be reticent to just do that. Richard, you mentioned the formation change. Um 
how is the relationship between McInerney and Adi looking so far in your opinion? Um, I mean, it looks fine to me, but as far as like the details behind that question, casting them into the kind of roles you normally see with a two person relationship, we didn't really get much time. We saw them for 12 minutes and the times we've seen it before have been late match situations where Mm. McInerney has been brought on and then the the tactics of the game are so tilted against the Timbers that it's hard to really judge the dynamic against a defense that's no longer trying to play out anymore. So I asked Fernando Audi about it after the game, and he seemed to indicate that there wasn't going to be kind of one person specifically that was going to settle in behind the other, one person that was going to be running along the defense to create space for the other. The way that he seemed to indicate that uh, how he understood Jack plays and how they're training is that they're both going to have pretty interchangeable roles. They're going to have to feed off of each other. And even on Saturday, Sunday during the times that I did think, oh, look, there's Jack Mack dropping in behind Fanato. Two minutes later, they would have switched spaces. Um, I think the one thing that is really interesting is that Fanato Adi has the athleticism to go wide, win balls, hold up play, and really get the uh, Timbers through the midfield that way or over the midfield that way. Uh, to have a poacher like Jack Mack continue to occupy the central defenders, you're really talking about leaving Fanato Adi either by himself or alone on a fullback. Um, there are various things that teams can try to do to that, not only just sending a big guy like Adi out to win balls, but if you circulate the ball around, eventually getting him isolated on one of those fullbacks if you can play the ball enough and take advantage of uh, take advantage of matchups like that. So it should be very interesting to see how it works out. Um, as far as actual skill sets, they seem to complement each other pretty well. Um, and, and obviously um, all United fans that are watching the rest of the league should know that Diego Valeri is, unless something happens at this week in training, he is going to be playing against DC United, which is terrible news um, as far as United fans are concerned. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is nice to get to see him. That will be fun. Um, how is he adjusting to this this new look, which is not too – he's played wide before for Portland just in – you know, flashes here and there. Yeah. When he's played wide before Portland before, it's usually been part of a, of a top three and he would actually tuck in and play more as a number 10. And you would rely on usually the right back to make up the width. And that looked like what they were doing in the first 12 minutes on Sunday, when they were able to establish possession, you would see Diego Valeri be able to come in from wide, find the spaces in midfield where he can make himself available. And then on the other side, Darlington Nabby was staying wide. And what that meant was Alvis Powell at right back was being asked to make up all that width, which is really a great use of Alvis Powell's skill set. Unfortunately, in the second half on Sunday, Alvis Powell had to leave the game with a right angle injury. Seeing him walking around the quarters of Providence Park after the game, he didn't look like he was severely injured. But if he can't play on Sunday, that'll obviously, or on Saturday, that's obviously going to impact how uh, Caleb Porter frees up that right flank if he if he does at all. But in theory, even in the 4-4-2, in the offensive phase, Diego Valeri is going to have the freedom to come in and play a traditional 10s role and not be just an, a winger. And I guess I, I guess my last question kind of um, relates to that. If Powell can't go, uh, what is Portland going to do at right back, and how much of a difference is that for them? Well, you can see the same thing that happened this weekend. Taylor Pay starting, who is a young player who hasn't played very much. He's perfectly decent right, right back. He would be in the mix to um, get playing time on most teams in this league, but he's also kind of nothing uh, special. I mean, you know, you guys have your own Taylor at fullback who's kind of nothing special but decent. Um, how that would impact it is 
He's just not the same threat, not the same delivery, not the same speed or athleticism. Somebody that has played in Porter's system now for years, he will know what to do, but it certainly will um, – it, it could lead to an unbalanced team if he's not somebody that DC actually has to account for. So my main question is about the uh, Timbers goal ke- goalkeeping situation, which has kind of evolved over the course of the season. Uh, Adam Quarse got hurt early in the year. And then it seems like the Portland Timbers fans got really excited with Jake Gleason, uh, and so much so that now Corsa is gone. Yeah. How good really is Jake Gleason, and he, does he deserve all of that uh, mini no, hype that he's yeah. gotten? Nobody knows. Uh, the last numbers I was looking at, he is not preventing shots to the level of Adam Corsa is, but his save percentage is better. Uh, and that certainly does seem to line up with what you see by the eye. Perhaps he isn't the the commander of a penalty area that a lot of people might prefer as a goalkeeper, but he certainly seems to have shown the shot-stopping reflexes to help offset that. The sample size is still very small, so I'm reticent to draw any conclusions from it. That does seem to fit in with his actual physical skill set, though. Um, and it is interesting what you say about Timbers fans. You know, ever since I've been up here, the Timbers fans have been very supportive of their goalkeepers, going back to somebody that you guys know very well, Troy Perkins. Uh, when they traded Troy Perkins for Donovan Ricketts, um, the fans were apoplectic, even though Ricketts then went on to win a goalkeeper of the year. Uh, when uh, Donovan Ricketts then moved on, they were disappointed in that, even though he was a bit of a, a tin man without the oil at that point. But whoever is usually in uh, net for the Timbers has gotten so much support. And, uh, you know, people out back here – didn't lament Corsay sale, but uh, given that he he actually won a won a playoff game last year for them with a penalty kick, it was a it was a slightly emotional or uh, sensitive departure. So I'm going to paraphrase a question from one of our listeners on Twitter, uh, Brendan Cartwright. He's at Brendonica on Twitter. He asks, um, "Well, I'm going to rephrase it. It's, what would it take t- for you to part with Fernando Adi?" Uh, for me, nothing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> what, would it, what, would it take for the, nice. what would it take for the Timbers to part with him? Um, really good con, a 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 really good contract for the production that he's given. Uh, which actually, my theory is, has fueled a lot of the trade rumors that you, trade rumors, uh, transfer rumors that you heard <laughs> about him over this year. There were a lot of rumors about him going to the Premier League. He was prominently linked with West Ham United. I didn't buy that as much as I just bought that his agent was trying to get a new contract for him because you could easily justify paying him about three times more than he is right now. Um, now that he has established himself as uh, somebody that everybody sees as one of the top sh- number nines in this league, I keep pointing out the, uh, that a year ago, fans were very disillusioned about Adi because his effort level was not matching what people expected. He seemed a little bit disillusioned. He wasn't producing to the level that he is now. But, you know, one good playoff run certainly changed his perceptions on things. But I think to um, Brendan's question, there, Fernando Adi isn't the only Fernando Adi in the world. And the number that he came to MLS at, even for a team like DC United, is not beyond the club's capabilities. DC United has to shuffle around the numbers a little bit more to make that work. But uh, it, this this isn't a diamond in the rough. This is a diamond in a field in a world's worth of diamonds. Um, and you see across the league, there are a lot of teams that have Fernando Adi level danger men. 
That yeah. just requires DC United to have a scouting system at all. Those yeah. things tend to cost money too, right? <laughs> yeah, scouting budget is yeah, to be able to, you know, pay the guy to find out where the diamonds are, where the field of diamonds I exists. Mean, that's where United is right now. We don't know where the diamonds are. Well, you know, I, Paul Tenorio was something for our site last week about how DC is letting the other teams get the diamonds for them. Only by the time they acquire them, there's a couple of scuff marks on the diamond and you're trying to pass it off as if it's not any better than a cubic zirconia. So sometimes that works. Uh, other times it just leaves you constantly chasing the league's tail. So we'll see how the latest acquisitions work for DC United. But uh, yeah, I don't en- envy you guys because... Uh, you're, con- you're continuously having to talk yourself into the virtues of other people's scouting. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. That said, our, our current starting forward, or presumably starting forward, Patrick Mullins, is a guy that DC United has scouted for years because he was right here down in, the street in our backyard. Yeah, I, I um, certainly like your guys' team more now. Uh, if you guys are going to stick with the formation you started this weekend, I think it's a much more balanced formation. I think it plays... Uh, place your strengths better and offsets the weaknesses of the team more. And uh, I'm going to be interested because particularly the guys you have wide, uh, obviously they're two very different guys, but they really seem to complement, complement, complement each other and allow some versatility in the team. I'm going to be interested to see if, if Ben can make this work. Yeah, we're, we've been optimistic about this formation. I think since the first time we saw it against new England, but I mean, part of that is just, I mean, United, there is a certain segment of the fan base here that just sees four, four, two and immediately assumes horrors and, uh, boredom, um, regardless of the fact that, I mean, Portland, no one's telling Portland that they are unpleasant to watch playing four, four, two counterattacking, uh, system. I mean, I guess I should say no one, but no one here, if you put those players in DC United jerseys would complain. Right. Um, but there's a certain perception with the the formation, not the publication, 442, where people are like, <laughs> oh, no, it's going to be so boring all the time. Yeah. And it doesn't actually have to be that way. Um, but in any case, the at least here, it, it certainly has made for a more interesting DC United, and they've created enough chances to win two in a row. It's just uh, putting them away, which at least, you know, I, I made the metaphor earlier on Slack of... DC is in purgatory now rather than hell. Um, <laughs> hell was not creating any chances. Purgatory is creating creating some chances and just not doing anything with them. Um, so one day we get we get heaven. It just might not be yet. Or it, might, it might not be anytime soon. Well, there is a difference between going to a four four two as a solution, as Caleb yeah. Porter has done now, as opposed to just defaulting to it. Not just for a season, but seasons after seasons, even after roster turnover, even after going to winters with the opportunity to instill a new approach that might actually allow you to control and dictate uh, games. And, you know, it's been a long time since we saw a different DC United. Uh, maybe yeah. that's why we're all a little bit excited about the one we're being presented now. Yeah, there are some fans who, who haven't come around to even that perspective. They just know, they, they think DC United of three months ago is, and and three years ago, to be honest, is the same DC United that, that we have now. And I don't think that's the case. Um, hopefully some chances start going in. So these fans who care, there, there are a subset of fans who care about only results, not how you get there. And 
they'll they'll be brought around it when the goals start going in. If if I had this DC United team in F in like football manager, I'd be really excited to see how it perform because you got a wide player on the right that's going to draw a lot of attention to him. You got a guy on the left that basically plays like a forward that can take advantage of physical matchups on the other side. You got a guy now coming from midfield who's not only a creative player but that can actually we've seen him score goals this year a little bit. Um, and then you've got a guy who's really active up top that can create those spaces. If you're left with Nick and Marcelo in midfield as those four guys are trying to make something happen in the penalty area, that sounds like it's got good balance, it's got good potential, and at least it seems like a big step forward compared to what the team has been playing with for most of this year. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think I think that, and and I've been saying it, the fundamentals of this team are a lot better than they they were under the four four two, and it's just a matter of putting chances away to actually make it count. Yeah, yeah, and it's I mean. Honestly, you guys have a conference to where if you do go, go on a good run over the last two months, you can end up being the, like the third or fourth seed. Well, we during our first segment, um, we had a moment where I had to point out that DC disappoint, was disappointing this weekend and still gained ground uh, on a playoff spot because New England and Orlando. Um, that's, that's ridiculous. Which is, it, yeah, it is. It is. It really is. Like when I had, I did an article, uh, I guess a couple weeks ago now, where I ran the numbers on what it was going to take to get into the playoffs with. Uh, you know, um, points per game and the totals were so low at the, at the end to get into the playoffs in the East. It was like 40 points is, is 42 like, points. you're right. Yeah. 40 points means you're like going into the last day of the season with a chance. Whereas <laughs> in most years, like last year, DC finished with 51 and barely got in. Um, it's interesting it, how it's getting worse. I was actually talking to a couple yeah. of GMs this week, and um, the conversation started with one GM and went to the other. These are both Western Conference general managers. And we ended up coming up with all of these different reasons, going down to just kind of pure attendance numbers in the West, about all of these mechanisms that are kind of making the Western Conference this kind of self, self-reinforcing, self competitive um, ecosystem. And then mm-hmm. you look over to the East, it's like, well, maybe one or two of the clubs have these characteristics over there. So people always talk about how cyclical it is. I mean, guys, we're like in year eight or nine of this at this point. And as mm-hmm. you just alluded to, Jason, there are some signs that it's getting ridiculous to the point that a team over at the end of this year, over the course of two or three weeks, can go from having like the number two pick in the draft to being in the playoffs. That's how yeah. that's how weak the bottom of that conference might be. And it, it's strange because one of the teams that meets most of the criteria there uh, would be Orlando. Um, and they're in, I mean, they've created their own mess. Um, yeah. well, I think, and I think another one that we pointed out is just pure managerial stability because in the West, almost everybody has been in their job for close to three years, except for the situation in Houston. Like Dominic Kinnear is one of the least tenured head coaches yeah. in the West. So all of these teams, well, and, and Seattle now, all of these teams are dealing with a lot of stability. You look over in the East and you've got, you do have some stability like in DC, but one of the teams that has organizational stability from the coaching level to the front office level, like Columbus has been terrible this year and they've just never come around. And if anything, that organizational stability may have cost them and not having enough dissenting voices in the room before Keith Kamara was shipped out. Right. Which, which actually, it kind of reminds me of how Burhalter ended up being available for Columbus. Um, the rumor, I, I mean, not that I can read a word of Swedish, but everything I heard about how things were going when he was at Hammerby was that people were saying he was their formation or their style of play was too conservative and they weren't scoring enough goals and they weren't having enough success ultimately. Um, and it just kept happening and nothing changed. 
Um, yeah. And it was just a sort of unshakable, like everything is going to work out if we just keep doing it over and over again. Eventually it will work. Um, and MLS is such a weird animal that last year that did work um, for Columbus. Um, the style of play hasn't changed at all for them. It's just they lost Kamara. Um, they had squabbling off the field and Gaston Sorrow played what, 10 games before he got hurt again. Um, so you take a couple things. It it sort of reminds me now that I think about it of DC 2012 versus 2013, where everything is really good. And then you take a couple things out and don't deal with it. And it's all of a sudden you're at the bottom of a, a truly one of the worst conferences in league history. Um, yeah. And it it's so it's such a thin margin. Everything in MLS. This is why I never really get why people are like, oh, it's a midsummer game. It's not that big of a deal. These games don't count. I mean, every season, it seems like MLS is it, a playoff spot is missed by a goal or a win. Um, DC missed a shield a couple of years ago uh, by losing to Seattle midsummer at one nothing. If they'd won yeah. one nothing instead, they would have won the shield on a tiebreaker. Um all these things with MLS are so narrow and people are like, no, it, it's a, you know, it's a loss in July. Who cares? Um, but you see these teams all the time where it's like one guy gets hurt and it all goes to hell. Um, yeah. It's such a strange, especially in the East where all these teams are so fragile. Um, now the Red Bulls are going to have to deal with it. I mean, granted, they don't have one guy. They've got possibly three. So that's not really fragile. That's just, you know, the world decides to hate you for a little while and you end up missing half your team. Um yeah. But it's a yeah, it's a strange situation in the East where most of the teams are bad. Like Philly, I don't even think Philly's actually that good. They're just competent and well planned out, and that's enough to be which is a solid weird playoff for them. team. No, that's <laughs> a huge departure for the Union. Um, yeah. But like them in Montreal, like Montreal shouldn't be a uh, an organization that you look at as stable or reasonable. <laughs> um, Definitely, you should not. be like they signed some awesome players, but also like. They could be lunatics any like any day they could just wake up and turn crazy for a month. Um, and yet Montreal is like, oh, for the East, they're like they're doing things right. This is a an organization you say maybe you should follow what they're doing most of the time. Whereas in the past, I'm like, no, don't follow Montreal. They're crazy. Um, yeah. But when the rest of the East is the mess that they are, maybe you should listen. I mean, granted, Montreal did go sign Piatti. Um, and if someone told you, hey, how do you want to start an MLS club? It, you know, go sign Ignacio Piatti or equivalent is a good first step, I think, for anyone. Yeah. Well, another thing that I talked about with a, one of those GMs is just the the fact that teams that have consistent systems can draw, can swap players in out real quickly and not feel the talent hit so so much. Um, you know, to a certain extent, DC United has been able to transcend some of its talent level by having a guy consistently uh, have. I mean, systems seem strong. But when one player gets injured for DC United, the whole thing doesn't get thrown out the window usually. Yeah, it's next man up. Yeah, you would rather have a better system, but hey, at least it's some consistency there. So with New York, you know, you wonder if the system, the approach that Jesse Marsh has instilled is resilient enough to withstand the injuries. At the beginning of the season, we would have said no. And I think a lot of people were calling on him to change things up because they look so bad. And Um, he tried to. Yeah, um, yeah. So, um you know, same thing with Montreal. They have a lot of talent, but would you really say that if Piatti is injured or Drogba is, you know, goes out for a period of time again, that they could withstand that? And in Philadelphia too, I, I think they're they're just probably not quite that uh, there yet, where they can just swap people in and out. So mm-hmm. um, that's another thing. You know, uh, 
with we're talking about it with Portland, they, they're switching formations, but you know the inherent style of play that they have means that if they lose Diego Chara this weekend, you're not expecting a totally different Timbers team to emerge. And when they lost Darlington Nagby earlier this year, you didn't think, wow, that's a unique talent. They need to change things up. So maybe the East needs a little bit of that. And maybe that's where Orlando uh, may be shot itself in the foot a little bit by again going away from continuity too soon. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, that kind of touches on something I, I saw this conversation. I wasn't really in on it, but. Uh, New England um, being kind of the same thing every single time. Um, And yet not, I mean, they added Kamara and it didn't really make them any better. Um, So they're a team without a plan B at this point. They're a team that isn't get the ball in the final third and then they sit on it for a while. They have, they have enviable talent too. Right. Um, I, I think theirs is an issue, not so much of stability being a good thing, but, inertia instead of stability um yeah because jay heaps has really played the exact same way and and even those talented players like i've been harping on this all year it's kind of become the jason hates the revs thing i really just i don't like jay heaps um but it's a true, lot of don't. those a lot of those young players haven't gotten any better um and they're not like kellen Rowe isn't really young anymore yeah. uh um teal bunbury isn't young i think teal bunbury is 27 now so you can't call him young it just they've all been together for so long that you would expect them. At, I mean, when those two, when they assembled that group, that should have been like, wow, two years from now, they're going to just run through the East. It's going to be ridiculous. And instead they're struggling like DC. and also have given up seven points out of nine to DC this year. Um, yeah. So uh, it's a, the, the East, it's like every single team has some sort of strange issue that doesn't make any sense. And being a team that doesn't have a debilitating issue means you're probably getting in. I mean, Toronto FC had to feel, what was it? 10 straight away games to start the year. Um, and I was worried. I was like, all right, TFC is going to figure out how to play on the road, but will they learn how to be the protagonist in games? Um, and it turns out they haven't really even had to so much. Um, yeah. They just, they defend well and let Giovinco bail them out. They had a stretch of time where that wasn't working. And then we, we helped Giovinco get himself together. Um, and now Sorry, he's back. America. Yeah. And now he's back to scoring like 600 goals on every single team he plays, no matter what. Yeah. Um, which was not enjoyable. Cause I kind of knew that the first team he scored a goal on, if they gave it up early, they're probably looking at a hat trick. And when he scored the first one, I was like, Oh God, this is going to happen. And it did. Uh, <laughs> Uh, not that wasn't any particular insight on my part. That was just a, uh, you know, a guy like him goes eight games without a goal and scores. You know what's coming next. He's going to all of a sudden go all Giovinco all over everybody. Um, maybe the maybe the margins in the East are so thin that we can see one player like a Giovinco or last year at the end of the year Drogba really sway the fortunes of a team. You can say one off-field personality, a Patrick Vieira, uh, yeah. Bernie Stewart, or when he first got there, Greg Berhalter completely changed the fortunes of a team too, to where um, all it takes is one little tweak. And so like we're talking about with New England, you know, Lee Nguyen comes there. It's better than people expected based on how he arrived there, completely makes him into a yeah. team that all of a sudden seems dangerous for the first time in years. But after a while, it wears off. You don't mm. build on it, and you're just kind of stuck in this. Uh, like you said, there's an inertia to it, and it lets the other teams that then go out and find their trick catch up, pass you, and then two years later they get passed. It's it's sort of like MLS's answer to the 
I know in Mexico and in Brazil, especially, there's a big thing of like you hire a coach, you get that burst initially of the new guy. And then after six months, it wears off and you just fire him and bring a new guy and you just keep repeating the the same system. Right. You just keep repeating that same trick. It almost sounds like a drug addict uh, going for a hit. And in the East, it's like you just wait for your turn on the the the, merry-go-round of getting something right for a little while um, or making one little move or or one little change. And they're like, hey, hey, for like four games, everything's working. And then you in the East, that means that you're going to like go up to first or second place, uh, give or take. Um, And that's how like a friend of mine at the game this past weekend before kickoff was like, hey, how is New York City in first? Like, how did that happen? Uh, and I was like, everyone else is bad. He's like, yeah. no, but you look at their roster, they're bad. And I'm like, no, I know, <laughs> but it's bad. It's relative bad. Uh, yeah. They are just they're able to win on the road and they're less bad than the rest of us right now. Um, and Lampard is healthy, which uh, has turned out to help a little. Yeah. Um, and that's it. That's that's all it took is that's what it takes to get to the top of East is like a couple things falling into place at the right moment when everyone else is like unable to function uh as a as a soccer organization so i don't and, and at every the end of week year, at the end of the year one of those teams is going to have you know like a one in three chance of going on the road and winning mls cup right I mean, at um, least this year yeah. it looks like the east team will have to go on the road this year yeah um but barring like some sort of chaos in the playoffs um where yeah, like true. fc yeah that wouldn't that just be the thing like dallas and la get knocked off and like the fifth or sixth team out of the west ends up uh, having to travel to the Eastern Conference champion, I can I laugh can at imagine it because MLS like, otherwise on, it, I would just be tearing Yankee my Stadium hair out. Field. Imagine oh MLS Cup at Yankee Stadium on that oh, tiny no. field. Before you do that, <laughs> it, though, let's let's yeah. go back to the game this weekend. Uh, last question for you, Richard: If you were in Ben Olsen's shoes, how would you game plan against the Timbers? Uh, for the last two months. The team has ebb and flowed with Diego Valeri's performances. Um, even before this last weekend, the last time they had won a game uh, was when v- Vier- uh, Valeri had a goal and an assist against Seattle for, uh, four games ago. Before that, Valeri had a couple of games where he was out of the lineup and Portland couldn't do anything. What you saw the Galaxy do actually started Nigel DeYoung and Jeff Laurentowitz in midfield, kept six behind Valeri the whole time. They got two early goals uh, through the Timbers' defense just making mistakes. And that seems like a decent enough formula for DC United. It's not like you're going to outplay uh, Portland based on their skill level, but you can test their defenders. You can make them go, you can make them go up and win battles on crosses. You can make, uh, you can make whoever plays it right back have to try to beat Patrick Niarco in the air. All right. Thanks for coming on the show. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you online? Uh, so I am the West Coast editor at 442 USA, 442.com slash US. Um, I, this is me bragging, but I think we're covering MLS in more depth and more regularly than any independent place right now. So um, if I were an MLS fan before this site came up, I'd be really excited about it. And then you can follow me on Twitter at, at Richard Farley. All right, find us at blackandredunited.com. We're on Twitter at filibusterdcu for the podcast, at blackandredu for the website. Send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. We're, uh, we're on iTunes. Make sure you subscribe there. We're on Stitcher. We're on SoundCloud. Uh, mostly tell a friend about us when you're at the tailgate. Uh, that's it for us this week. We will talk to you real soon. For Jason and Ben and thanking Richard one more time, I'm Adam. Say goodbye, Jason. Goodbye, Jason.